All right, I would like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're ministering on the workings of the Holy Spirit. And in that study, we've spoken about a lot of different things. The deity of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's workings in many, many uh, areas of the Word. We were focusing the last few weeks upon the gospel in that the gospel message is to repent and believe. It isn't just to believe, but repent and believe. We shared with you what repentance then meant, and we talked about believing and raised the question, believe what? And we emphasized, of course, believe that Jesus died and paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, but also believe that God has a plan for our life and He wants to take control of our life. He wants to influence it in such a way that He can direct us and guide us in a new life. And that's a part of the Gospel. To just present the side where Jesus paid the penalty for your sins without any emphasis on discipleship or without any emphasis upon how that now you've got a a new chance, a new a second chance to start over and walk and live in a new kind of life, without that you're not presenting the full gospel message. That'd be like the the woman that was caught in adultery when Jesus said to her Woman, you know, he said, where are thy condemners? And they were all gone. And he said, I don't condemn thee either. Go and sin no more. Be one thing to forgive. But if he didn't say to her, go and sin no more, to just go on to continue on in the life of the harlot, that was just a temporary forgiveness that lasted until the next time when she... Uh, got involved in fornication. So there, the gospel includes a message of how that we are to be born again and to live a new life. Now that's not a new message. It's not a new message. I remember for years one minister when he was quoting out of John 3 and he would talk about Nicodemus and when Nicodemus would say, how can a man be born again without going back into his mother's womb. And he would always say, when he talked about Jesus referring to Nicodemus, he would always say, you're a teacher of the law and you don't know these things? You don't know what it means to be born again? And that's not real plain right there in John 3, but it's true what he's saying. But being forgiven and walking in a new life is the message that goes all the way from the beginning to the end. It's not just something that is new. And I believe I can show you that by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And what is here is really going to give us a foundation for several other things to talk about in regard to the workings of the Holy Spirit. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and let's start with verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all did eat the same spiritual meat and all did drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them and that Rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. And these things are our examples to the intent that we should lust after evil things as they also lusted. He goes on then in verse 11. He says, these things are, they have happened unto them as an example And they are written for our admonition upon the whom the end of the world shall come. Now let me ask you a question. Let's go back to what it said there in verse 2. 
Let me ask you a question. He says, I would not have you to be ignorant about the things that are here. How many of you understand or know what he's talking about when he talks about being under the cloud? When he talks about passing through the sea? When he talks about being baptized under Moses? When he talks about being uh, eating of the spiritual meat and drinking of the spiritual drink and that spiritual rock was Christ? But if I were to ask any of you the question this morning, can you explain to me what he means there in verse 2 when he says that all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea? Would anyone like to give a five-minute quickie to explain what's there? I'm waiting for a ham. Zach, is that your ham? Oh. So then I can safely assume this morning that we have some that are in ignorance on what exactly this means. Could I safely assume that? Don't be quiet. I'm going to ask a question. Yes. And yet he said, I would, I would not that you should be ignorant, brother. In other words, we're supposed to understand this. We're supposed to know exactly what he means here. And I hope that, I, that in the time that I have to explain what's here, I hope I can explain it to you in such a simple way that you walk out of here and what I've said about the gospel will just be looked upon in a, in a different way in that, wow, they did have it back then, didn't they? That, that the message that we presented the last couple of weeks is the same thing that was occurring when it came to Israel and Egypt. The Old Testament is often referred to by some theologians as the Older Testament. And the reason why is because you've got people today that when it comes to the Old Testament, they tend to think of it as obsolete. And they carry around half a Bible. And they have a bad attitude toward the Old Testament in that if there's something in the Old Testament that, that they don't like, rather than dig out the true meaning of maybe what is there, they like to just throw off the cuff the term, that's legalism. I've heard that so often in my years in the ministry and as a Christian that I've come to the point where these Sometimes when people say that's legalism, I just kind of want to reply back and say, would you explain to me what legalism is? Because I don't even think they know. I don't think they even have a clue. The Old Testament, everything that is in the New Testament is in the Old Testament, with the exception of the revelation of the church. And some would even say that's there, but I don't really see what they're saying in regard to the scriptures they use, so I stay with the position I originally made that everything that is in the new was already there and in the old. But when the old is referred to in the new, it's not referred to as obsolete or no longer uh, of any use. Now, we're not under the law, and the law has been fulfilled in Christ. We're not talking about that aspect of it. But when the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is given by God for, and it's inspired by God for um, reproof and correction, instruction and righteousness, it isn't just all Scripture in the New Testament. It's all Scripture. The key to understanding the Old Testament is to see that it is like a shadow. There's a couple places. I want you to put your ribbon there in 1 Corinthians 10 because we'll be mainly working out of that. But in the book of Hebrews, for example, chapter 8, verse 5, sometimes the Apostle Paul would refer to the Old Testament as the shadows, especially in Hebrews. It's almost like the theme is, come out of the shadows and into the light when he's talking here in chapter 8 about the priesthood. And prior to that, he spoke of the tabernacle and the high priest and his function and 
offering up sacrifice. If you read in chapter 8, it says, for example, these things were which we have spoken of, is, this is the sum. We have a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, where it is of necessity that this man has somewhat also to offer. For if he were on the earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern or the shadow shown to thee in the mount. That will become more clear as we go on in this studies out of 1 Corinthians 10. But when you talk about something that's a shadow, look around the room and see if you can see something that would point to a shadow. I can see a shadow, for example, that speaker that's over in the corner. I don't know if you can see it, but I can see it from here. That behind that speaker is a, a dark shadow that is on the wall. Now, when I look at that shadow, I can see to a certain degree that it has the shape of that speaker box. But it's not the speaker box. To actually see the speaker box, there's a lot more detail and a lot more understanding of the shadow when I look at the speaker box. Or I was looking out here this morning for a shadow, and I saw where that music stand over there, for example, had a shadow to it. Now the image, the shadow, points back to something that's real, but it doesn't have it the full the full grasp or the full knowledge of what that speaker stand is. It only gives us a a glimpse of something that's real. Well, what Paul's saying here is that in the Old Testament, when Moses set up the tabernacle and the ministry, the priesthood, and all of that, it was a shadow of what was real in the heavens. God gave Moses a revelation of what was really in the heavens as far as the priesthood, the uh, the temple, the uh, throne of God, and on and on. And these things Moses then was to try and copy or pattern after down here. So there's something that is of great value. And everything that was that he showed all pointed to something that was of a greater revelation, a greater fulfillment of what that shadow pointed to, and it had something to do with Christ. So there's nothing wrong with the shadow, because the shadow points to Christ. But it doesn't give the full revelation. It doesn't give the full depth and understanding. That came about when Jesus came on the scene. And we're told in Matthew 5, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. And one of the ways he fulfilled it was by giving the the deeper meaning, the uh, obvious meaning, the true meaning of what was just a shadow in the old. Of course, the book of Hebrews, when you understand the uh, purpose of it, the Apostle Paul, who I believe wrote it, was admonishing the early Hebrew Christians who wanted to leave Christianity and go back into Judaism because of the severe persecution that they were under. And what he said to them was, don't leave, come out of the shadows and into the light. Don't leave the light to go back to the shadows. I mean, if we wanted to have understanding about that speaker, I wouldn't want to go back to the shadow. The shadow just points to the reality of the speaker and gives us a little bit of detail and that, you know, it might be four foot high and a foot wide, but why would I want to leave that when I have the speaker that shows me that it's made out of plywood, that it's got a, like a checkered front on it, and it gives me the, it gives me a lot more knowledge and understanding of the, of the true thing. If you look over to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, Paul confirms what I'm talking about here. He says, For the law, 
having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. You see, what they saw was a a shadow or a type or a figure. They saw a lamb that was slain. But that was just like a shadow. It was just pointing to something that of an animal or someone that was shedding blood and the fuller revelation was that God sent his son to die on the cross and shed his blood for our, on our behalf. So it was a pattern. It was a type. I don't mean to imply that, that it necessarily looked exactly the same, but it was a pattern. It was a type. And now we have the fuller, deeper revelation. Well, what Paul's talking about there then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that the lessons of Israel coming out of Egypt were a pattern, a type, an example that we need to understand because they point to that deeper, fuller revelation that we have as a Christian. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and I want to talk about a few of the things that he mentions there which are really, you'll see, are confirmations of what we already know to be true in the new. The law, the Bible says in First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, without turning there, the attitude of so many is that they pick and choose at the Old Testament. If it's convenient, they'll follow it. But if something's there that they don't like, even even if it's something that maybe is a thou shalt not eat, you know, catfish or chicken or pork, that looking for the deeper understanding and meaning as to why something like that would have been given, because in the New Testament we're free from that kind of stuff, but instead of looking for the deeper purpose and meaning behind it, too many just throw it away. And there's a reason why that God said that. And the reason is far more important than any kind of food or meat or drink. I mean, just stop for a moment and take what I said. God was trying to teach them something about this animal's okay to eat and this animal's not okay to eat. Why was he doing something like that? Why was he? He was trying to keep them separated from the nations that were around him. Sometimes they would um, worship those animals. Sometimes those animals were their gods. But he was trying to separate a people unto himself so that they would not blend in with their neighbors around them because he knew that bad company corrupts good morals. So would any of you disagree with me on that? Years ago, I think it was Dad Humbard. I think it was him that once made the statement, you can have a pedigreed dog, but if you... Let that dog run with the mutts of the world. That piece of paper won't mean a thing. Bad company corrupts good morals. We're not in, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. But if you let your children run with the children of the world and grow up with all the children of the world, you're going to find that the influence of them, if you're not careful, is going to pull them down. Your children either need to be strong that they can say no to some of the things that are thrown at them or else you're going to find where the influence of the world will pull them down and they'll only become a source of heartache and sorrow. So God was trying to keep Israel separate from the nations around them so they wouldn't pick up their idolatrous habits and because Israel failed to do that and they picked up their idolatrous habits, all the way through the Old Testament, they are rebuked and admonished and corrected by the prophets because they turned and went the wrong way. So there's something far more important and deeper than a pork sandwich when God was trying to tell them not to partake of that which was unclean. Y'all with me? So there's a purpose, there's a reason. There's something deeper here than just what is on the surface when we talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 10 
And we talk about Israel coming out of Egypt. Well, come on, go, go, go back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 again. I believe that God's plan for deliverance of Israel out of Egypt is a pattern for us in regard to the greater deliverance that we have that's in Christ. And it's something that is important because Paul says to this New Testament church, I don't want you to be ignorant about these things. And they were Greeks. This is Corinth. And he he wanted them to have an understanding. So we won't be able to cover all this, I don't think, in one day. We'll we'll talk about it in three stages. And I'd like to get through three things this morning. But I think you'll see where it will give us the foundation to build upon. The first thing, and it's really not here. It's here, but it's not here. It's not here in a scriptural reading sense. But the first thing to understanding this, this to me is like stage two of the whole, the whole area of Israel coming out of Egypt. First of all, something had to occur in Egypt, and that was salvation by the blood. God sent Moses, his deliverer, right where they were. He sent Moses into Egypt. And right there in the midst of all of the misery and the slavery and the threat of God's wrath and facing judgment upon them, Israel was saved by their faith in the blood of the sacrifice that he had appointed. They slew the animal, the lamb. They put the blood on the top of the doorposts. They put the blood on the side of the doorposts. And right there, because of the blood, Israel saved them and delivered them from the wrath that came into the land. And that's a type. It's a figure. Paul refers to the Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. And John the Baptist, when Jesus came on the scene, he was presenting the coming of the Messiah as the lamb. John 1.29, he presented Jesus as the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. And over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, you read here, for example, where Paul talks about the Passover Lamb. 1 Corinthians 5.7, he says, for example, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So that lamb at the Passover was a type and a figure of Christ. And what it did was it gave Israel a temporary deliverance from the wrath of God that was there. It gave them a temporary deliverance from that physical slavery that they were under. But did it stop there? No. It was a start for their life. It was not God's purpose and intent to live, to leave, rather, Israel in Egypt. The very night the Passover was sacrificed, Israel began their exodus. The very night. Think about it. They were there became an army in ordered ranks based upon fathers and sons and births and this, that and the other. They just weren't plain old slaves anymore. They had a goal that was set in front of them. And that goal was what? Promised land. There was an urgency to leave. They were told, You don't even let your bread leaven, but you're going to eat this in haste, you're going to do this in haste. You're going to do it with your loins girt about and you're going to be prepared and ready so when the call comes forth to go, you're going to go. It was an urgency that was there. And they marched in haste. And the pattern is the same for today. God saves the sinner in the world in the midst of their bondage and their slavery to sin by their faith in the blood of God's appointed sacrifice. He meets them right where they're at. 
you remember the pictures I showed you a few weeks ago of some people that have physically abused their their faces, their bodies with piercings and I don't know what all you'd call some of that stuff. They call them, they look like dinosaur bumps coming out of their heads and huge rings they'll put into their ears. One of my students this year had that kind of stuff. The only thing lacking was the steak knives. I mean, I showed you some where they had two steak knives that were going through their nose. And I forget, Dolan told me what they call these dinosaur bump things that were on their head, but they aren't here today. And I made the comment when I put that up there, and that's all. I said, I made the comment, I said, now Jesus died for people that have gone to such a degree like that. And if you think that God doesn't care about abuse of the body like that, I'm a, uh, you need prayer. I mean, where do you find that kind of stuff? That's not new. That's not new. Where would you find that kind of stuff? The old heathen pagan religions in other places of the world. Get out of National Geographic and start looking around. I can remember seeing stuff like that back in the 50s and 60s in Africa and, and out in the Asian countries whereby they would just mutilate their bodies. And, and the Bible comes out against mutilations like that. But anyways, I'm just trying to make a point here. For a person like that to be saved, they don't. you wouldn't as a minister say, I tell you what, you can come into my church if you take all those nubs off and cut all those rings off and pull all that crap out of your ears. and I'll let you come in. You, you can come in and then you can get saved. Don't have to do that. God sent Moses into Egypt and he saved Israel right in the midst of all of that bondage and misery and slavery that was there. You don't have to clean yourself up to get saved. All you need to do is recognize you need to get saved. All you need to do is, rec is, to, is to stand in the mirror and, and say, what am I doing? What am I trying to prove? What is, what is, what is wrong with me? Why am, why am I doing this? I want a new life. I want something better. God have mercy upon me. The key is to want a new life. The key is to want a new life. Not just forgiveness. But forgiveness for what reason? To start all over. To get a new life. You see, he saved them in Egypt. But immediately, immediately, he said, now you're out of here. You're coming out. I've got something new for you. You're not going to stay here. And that's the problem that too often today, when the gospel's presented, it's just forgiveness, 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 with no implication of separation, with no implication of sanctification, with no implication of change. That'd be like a man, for example, that his marriage is in a miserable condition because he's abusive. And rather than see it go down the tubes in divorce, he cries out to God and he says, Oh God, please save my marriage. And God says, Okay, I'll save your marriage. And he saves his marriage, but he doesn't save it so that the man can continue to be abused in. He saves it to give him another chance to whereby he doesn't destroy it by the way that he lives. I mean, this, this is not new. Soldiers during the wars, like World War One and Two, would cry out from the trenches in the foxholes. When the bombs were hissing and blowing up all around them, they'd cry out and they'd say, Oh God, please protect me and keep me from harm's way. Help me get out of this mess. But you see, if God protected them and delivered them, it was for the purpose to whereby when they got out of that foxhole... They wouldn't go back to their drunken bars. They wouldn't go back to their houses of ill repute. They wouldn't go back to living the old sinful lifestyle that they were living in. But they saw that as a second chance that if they got out of that foxhole, they were going to seek to find out what was necessary to live for Christ and live for Christ. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we have salvation by just taking Jesus as Savior and we can't take Him as Lord. Salvation is, is believing that Jesus died for and paid the penalty for our sins, but it's also believing that He has the knowledge, He has the way, He has the truth, the right way to live, and we surrender ourselves unto that new way of life. This goes way back. See, way back, when God said, I'm going to send that Passover lamb right there in in the bondage in the midst of Egypt, and my people are going to slay that lamb and be covered by it, and they're going to be delivered from the wrath of God that's going to go about and destroy Egypt. But they're out of there. They weren't going to stay there. He pulled them out immediately. He said, you're coming out. That was just a temporary thing for deliverance from physical bondage, but his intent and purpose was to get them to live and to walk in a new way of life. A life of separation. A life of sanctification. A life of suffering for righteousness' sake. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. I don't have any problem with churches that say, come as you are. You don't need to, you don't need to do something special to come to church and get saved. You don't have to go to church to get saved. Really, the church is the place where saved people come to worship the Lord and hear the word. We really ought to be getting people saved out there and then bring them into the church rather than bring them to the church to save them, but I'm not going to nitpick. But if you think that all the church has to do is just say, okay, you're forgiven, now we don't care from that point on how you live, you're wrong. We have got to present a message to whereby, hey, you are born again. And the things of old are past. You got You now are to walk in a new kind of life. And the Bible emphasizes that over and over again. We've stressed it over the last few weeks. Second Corinthians chapter six and verse fourteen. It is a life of separation. He says here in verse fourteen, "Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers." Now, let me ask you a question before I keep reading. Would you say that Israel and Egypt were yoked together? Well, sure they were. I mean, they were, they were Egypt's slaves. They were, there was a yoke of bondage that was there. So when God saved them, He broke the yoke. And He delivered them from that bondage. And His message was, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion has light with darkness? What concord or agreement, really, has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as he has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and they, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Come out, therefore, from among them. And be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and you will be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And when you read that, think about what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I can see the connection and relationship together in the, after they covered their doorposts with the blood, and the call came forth, and they gathered up what they had, and out they went, they fled. They were told, you're going to get deliverance, but you're also going to have to leave that Egypt, that, that old way of life behind. So the salvation and deliverance that they received automatically took them, immediately took them out of Egypt and put them into a different Environment. It put them in, first of all, into the wilderness. Now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Can you agree with me that that's a type and figure of the New Testament Christian? That when we get born again, it's to start over in a new way of life. 
Can you all say amen to that, or do you think I twisted everything? All right. Raise your hand if you think you twisted it, and I'll come out and twist your arm a little more. No. I know you know better. It should bear witness with your spirit. Now let's look at stage two. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now we pick up what's here, and really this is that element where, if you can picture historically in your mind, Israel has covered their doorposts with the blood, and they have marched out, and now they're on their way out toward the wilderness. They're gathering together, and the Red Sea, of course, is in front of them, and they're on the march. They're on the move. So that's basically what you have at this point. But I'd like you to to see now there's some some things here that we'll will be able to identify with this but I want you to see that there's an emphasis by the author here with the use of words to make it so that we understand that the principle that's here is for every Christian five times the author who's the holy spirit used the word all Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. You're talking about that time era, of course. And all, third time, were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all did eat the same spiritual meat and all did drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So it was not one of these things to whereby, okay, yeah, I got delivered there in Egypt. I got salvation in the sense that I was delivered from the physical bondage that I was under. But as for the rest of this trip, I don't don't know if I'm really interested in all the other things that that you're offering here. Too often people pick and choose. And what this is leading up to is baptism. And that's one where people certainly pick and choose. They pick and choose about whether or not they went to baptism of the Holy Spirit, for example. Or they pick and choose as to whether or not they think they should be rebaptized, because after all, they were baptized as an infant. And even though that may have been 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that's good enough. I get a piece of paper that says, all right. And even though it's not scripturally right, eh, who cares? So they feel like, oh, that's okay for them and I'm not going to be critical. But as for me, I don't think that's necessary. Well, five times he said here, all, 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 all did this. There wasn't any exception. So the first thing he says is that They were under the cloud. I would that you all, how how that all of our fathers were under the cloud. What does that mean to be under the cloud? Well, the next thing that should occur in the life of the Christian is after he is born again, there should be a baptism that takes place. Two kinds. Baptism in the Holy Spirit and a baptism in water. Let me remind you about what baptism means. And and I just, by the way, spoke to Nate again this morning about how we need to have a baptism in this church this summer. No excuses. We're going to do it. So hoping somebody would rise up and say, we're going to get it organized and we'll do it so the pastor doesn't have to do it all. And I'm believing that some, some will do that but I'll help make arrangements and so forth. We are going to have a baptism this summer because I believe there are some here that need to be water baptized. Are there some here that need to be water baptized? I believe there are. Then let's have a baptism because it's something God expects. But what does it mean to be baptized? The word literally in the Greek means to dip or to immerse. There's different places in the scripture where it's used and it has nothing to do with the baptism of a human being into water to signify Christian baptism. But just to tell you what the meaning of the word is. One would be where at the Last Supper, they're kind of 
bugging Jesus as to who it is that's to betray him. And he said, to whom I give the sup after I have dipped it, he it is who has betrayed me. What's the sup? He said, I'm going to dip the sup. The sup is just a piece of bread, a morsel, a crumb. He probably took and broke a little bit off. It was just a small portion of bread. And he supped it and he dipped it into something. But he, he immersed it in. He dipped it in. He dunked it down into uh, whatever was there on his plate. You know, like they, we don't know for sure what they had for supper. That was a supper. But he dipped it into that. What do you do with an Oreo cookie and milk? You baptize it. Okay? I mean, who takes an Oreo cookie, puts it in her hand, takes a spoon out, and sprinkles a little bit of milk on a cookie, and eats it? Huh? No. They were made to, to be dunked. They advertise them that way. So what if you get the tip of your finger a little milky? Who cares? Ain't nothing, and they're nothing better than, than taking an Oreo cookie and dipping it in the milk. You're baptizing it. That's what the word baptize, bapto means. When the rich man died and was crying out from his pain and suffering unto Abraham, he said, Abraham, Abraham, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue from these flames. Well, he was talking about baptizing his finger. He, you know, push it down into the water. You immerse the tip into the water. You don't take a spoon in there and just sprinkle it around on it. The word means to immerse. The word means to dip. And so when he's talking here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says all were baptized unto Moses. Now that really raised the question. What does that mean? I'll get to it. Be patient. But he's talking about here them being immersed or surrounded or engulfed by either the sea or the cloud. What is the cloud? Well, the cloud, if you turn over to Exodus 13, put your ribbon there, they were surrounded. They were, they, the cloud was in front of them. The cloud was behind them. The cloud was above them. The same thing with the sea. When the sea was parted and they went through it, they didn't go through, um, you know, you didn't look over yonder at the sea. It was not the reed sea, like, like, like it was a little marsh and they're getting their ankles wet. That thing was like a tunnel that they were going through. There was an opening. There was a parting. And they walked through it, but it was surrounding them. And that's what he's implying here when he talks about that immersion. In Exodus chapter 13 and verse 20, oh, i got to get going. I can't believe we're, I've been up here 15 minutes already. Exodus chapter 13, <laughs> that was for you, hon. In verse 20, she asked me one time, why can't you just preach a 30-minute sermon? I don't know. I've been doing this now for how many years? 30 Going on 35, have you ever heard a 30-minute sermon from me? I must have been severely ill or something if it was. I don't even, don't ever remember that. But Pardon? We used to take those 120-minute cassettes and fill them up, didn't we, Jim? <laughs> Exodus chapter 13 and verse 20. The cloud was the presence of the Holy Spirit. In Exodus chapter 13 and verse 20 we read, they took their journey. Now see, this is on their way out. They're departing and they're, they're leaving Egypt and they're heading toward the wilderness. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel saying that God will surely visit you and carry up my bones away from hence with you. That's verse 19. And they took their journey from Succoth and encamped in Ethan at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and to go by night. 
And he took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of the fire by night from before the people. So this pillar went with them. Well, what did it look like? It was a cloud. It was a pillar. It was, you know, some type of something in the sky, like a dark cloud or uh, whatever, but it gave them guidance, protection. It gave them light. It guided them. It directed them. And it was the presence of God in that pillar. Now they cloud, they could look out and that cloud was there to watch over them and protect them. They didn't get sunburned. If they got cool at night, it gave them heat. It protected them from their enemies. And all they had to do was voluntarily follow it. It didn't go behind them and force them. It didn't start spinning real fast and suck them in. It was just there. The presence of God was there saying, this is the way that you're to go. If they followed it, they were blessed. If they didn't, they weren't. The Holy Spirit's a gentleman. When you ask Him to come into your life and He baptizes you in the Holy Spirit, He promises to come in and lead you and guide you and direct you in God's plan. And He will. Inwardly, He will speak to you and direct you and guide you in how you should act and live. But He won't force it. You can quench the Holy Spirit. You can resist Him. You can ignore Him. But if you do that, you'll suffer for it. So the cloud, they were to voluntarily follow it. And the cloud gave Israel light through Moses. The cloud was not just there. At this point, it was just there and they followed. But after they crossed over the Red Sea, the cloud went up on the mount and called Moses to the mountain. If you look at Exodus chapter 19, boundaries were set and the people could not get real close to the, to the cloud. They were afraid to. And God spoke to Moses out of the cloud and gave him everything necessary to direct and guide his people in regard to worship, in regard to the law, in regard to... I don't think we'd be too far off to say basically the Pentateuch, the five books of the Bible, with the exception of maybe Genesis. But in Exodus 19, it was the cloud that Moses got his revelation of truth from, and it wasn't given to all the people. Moses came down, and Moses was God's anointed prophet. And Moses said, here, this is God's will, this is what you're to follow. I'm the one in, in authority here, and this is the way that it's going to be. Now, in a real sense, God has given His ministry special gifts. Ephesians 4. Some prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and they've been given the authority to reprove and rebuke and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine God's people by the Holy Spirit, by His Word. God expects His people to listen and to do what they say. They have the right to search the Scriptures to see if these things be so. But the attitude of too many today is that they pick and choose at what they want to hear and they don't know the Word of God as they should. I mean, it's a sad case sometimes. My wife was sharing with me the other day and I hope I don't twist this too much, but she's talking about, I think it was Chuck, was it Chuck Swindoll that mentioned about the, the verses in the Bible? Yeah. It was. She was listening to Chuck Swindoll and he was at obviously some kind of church or seminar or something and as he was going along preaching, he could tell the people weren't with him. So he stopped and he said, let me, let me explain some things. The Bible is written in different books and talked about what they were. And then it's divided up into different chapters. And each verse in that chapter has a number on it. And he just went into explaining the structure of the Bible as far as the numbers and verses. And, and, and it's a chapter and it's a book. And later on he said several people came up and said, they really needed that. They, they, they were thoroughly lost when somebody would say, 
Turn to 1 Samuel 13, 9. They had not a clue what they were talking about. And I thought to myself, God's people just have not been taught. But some of them don't want to be taught. They don't want to be taught. Man, let's have some fun. Hey, come on. Let's just play church. What do I need to get forgiveness? I don't want no lifestyle change. I don't want that. Just, I want forgiveness. I want heaven. I want to make sure when I die, I got something waiting for me other than what the rich man got. But no, I don't want control, my God. I don't want you to stand up there and say something, and if I... And if I don't want to do it, even though you may be right, if I don't want to do it, I that's fine. But when Moses went to the mount, God said, "You are you are in charge, and here is what you're to present to the people." When they followed Moses, they were blessed. Ask Joshua and Caleb. But when they resisted and rebelled, ask Korah and his group what it was like. And 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 I'm and I'm right here, hold your finger there. I'm not out of whack from what I'm talking about because as you keep on reading there in First Corinthians chapter ten, I didn't read it but listen to it. He went on to say, with them many God was not pleased, and he said, These are written as examples. Don't lust after evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were who sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. Don't commit fornication as as some of them committed. And in one day fell 23,000. I mean, that sounds like a one-day war. What was 9-11? A couple thousand? Ten times worse than the Twin Towers one day. Don't tempt Christ as some of them also tempted Him and were destroyed as serpents. Don't complain and murmur as some of them murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. These are given as an example. An example of what? You better respect and listen to what your spiritual leadership is trying to say to you. Because they didn't. And they took Moses and others for granted. And God held him accountable for it. God called Moses up on the mount, and he was in that cloud. I didn't read it, but I know where it's at. In verse 9, the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come to thee. I'm in Exodus 19 now. Lo, I come to thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people, Unto the Lord. And the Lord said, Moses, go unto the people and set them apart today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people on Mount Sinai and you'll set bounds. In verse 19 we're told, When the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And they spoke. He was in the cloud. He was in the cloud. So when they listened to what God said as he spoke through the cloud, that cloud was a source of blessing because it gave them wisdom and guidance and direction on how they were to live through the ministry. It gave them light. It gave them protection from the sun. It it gave them warmth and the coolness of the night. If they followed it, they didn't suffer. If they didn't listen, they suffered. And the cloud protected them. Look at Exodus chapter 14. From their enemies. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 19. The cloud surrounded them. It immersed them. It went around them. In Exodus 14 and verse 19 we're told. The angel of God which went before the camp of Israel. Removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face. 
and it went behind them. And it came to pass between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel that the cloud was darkness to them, but gave light by night to those so that one came not near the other all night. What kept Egypt from attacking Israel prior to the Red Sea when they got closer? What kept them separated? The cloud. What keeps us separated from the powers of darkness and his desire to sift this as wheat? The blood. The name. We have a deeper revelation. But it's the, it's the Holy Spirit who loves us and is protecting us. I'm going to close with just, just a couple quick verses. And I'm not going to be able to get into water baptism, but, but when you, but I'll, I'll briefly mention something and you'll see it and we'll deal with it later. But look at Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 3. Isaiah 43 and verse 3. That cloud was around them. They were immersed into Moses in that they were immersed into his teaching. They were immersed into his doctrine. They were immersed into his word. God spoke to Moses, and Moses spoke to the people. And they were directed and guided by the word of the Lord through Moses. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 3, he speaks here about Israel. I want to start at verse 1. But now saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not. I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by my name. Thou art mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with thee. When you go through the rivers, they'll not overflow thee. When you walk through the fire, it'll not burn thee, and flames won't kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. Now listen to the wording here. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. Whoa! Is he saying Egypt was paid the penalty for Israel? What he's saying here, I believe, is that they were both worthy of judgment. And he said, I'm going to judge Egypt, but I'm going to spare you. But, he, but you see what he's saying? He says, "I when you put that sacrificial lamb out there, and you did that by faith, and you came unto me into a new life, you're mine. I've got control of you, and I'm going to be with you where you walk and where you eat, and I'm going to provide for you and protect for you, and I'm going to deliver you. They were directed and guided by the cloud, and the cloud was God. Now, dear church, it's the same way today. The baptism of the Holy Spirit has been given and poured out so that He can be come into our um, into our lives, that we become His temple, and He can dwell from within and direct and guide and protect and bless. And just real quick, and then I'll stop. How does water baptism apply to that? Think about it. They came to the Red Sea. And there was water all around. And when it parted, they went through the sea. What were they doing when they went through the sea? They were going from an old life to a new life. They were going from old Egypt to a new life. And once the water closed behind them, those that tried to do that, to me is a good illustration of, of religion, they were destroyed by their religious works, but Egypt died. That Red Sea was a was it was like Israel went through death and came out unto a new life, and the old Egypt and the old way of life it's washed up in that Red Sea. No different than Christian baptism. We're buried in Christ and risen in Christ unto a new way of life. I don't want to keep going. It's so easy to to see it. But you see what we're saying? There's a pattern that is there. Salvation by the blood. Baptized or immersed into the presence or the cloud of the Holy Spirit. And going through the Red Sea 
being baptized unto a new way of life. Paul's using a shadow. No, it's not, it's not as plain as the speaker on the wall. It's a shadow. But it points to the deeper truths that God expects all Christians to walk in and follow when they receive that revelation from the New Testament. Something to think about, eh? Now do you know what it means when he says they were baptized into Moses and in the cloud? I hope you have a better understanding of it. Father, bless the word to our hearts. Thank you for the wisdom and understanding. And I know I've just laid a foundation. There are many pearls yet to be dug out and polished. But I thank you for the wisdom and understanding that's here. And may it confirm to our hearts that the calling on our life is to be forgiven and to walk in a new way of life. Thank you, Father, for this precious truth in Jesus' name. Amen.